Hey, good afternoon, Bridgeway. Good to see y'all. You guys excited to be in the house of God today? Oh, come on. It is, a, it is a good day to be in church, and it is a, an absolute honor to be here with you. Uh, like Pastor Brian said, my name is Jake, and uh, I am the biblical studies pastor for the Father's House out in Vacaville. Uh, prior to that, my wife and I, in 2018, we, we launched the Roseville location for the Father's House, and we, uh, we ran that for a little over five years. A couple months ago, we moved up to Vacaville to take on some new ministries, but we're, we're, we're enjoying the journey. And I just want to take a minute to brag on your church. Obviously, I know you love it because you're here, um, but you guys have a healthy church here. I've got to meet some of the, the pastors I didn't know beforehand, and they're awesome. Pastor Anthony, Pastor Brian. Uh, I've known Pastor Ryan for, I don't know, 12, 15 years doing ministry together. And uh, I got to meet Pastor Lance uh, a little over six years ago now. And he's been just about the biggest encourager possible. Um, when my, my wife and I, we first um, started the, the campus, uh, we got invited to this lunch that they throw in Sacramento for all the new pastors coming in. And they threw a lunch to let people know, hey, there's no competition in the region. We're on the same team winning the city for Jesus. And uh, we got the opportunity to place at a table with Pastor Lance and Bishop Parnell Lovelace. <laughs> let me tell you. And so we sat down with them and uh, we just listened for like an hour to wisdom and just a depth of the Holy Spirit. And uh, that relationship has continued on the last five years. And and uh, you, you probably don't know this, but Pastor Lance actually has a small group just for young pastors in the region, just to encourage them and love on them. And, and uh, it's made all the difference in, in my life. And uh, you, don't, you probably don't know this either. And I just want to th say thank you for giving to Bridgeway because they actually take the young pastors on a retreat every summer to make sure they're doing well, which is awesome. So I got to watch John Wick with your pastor. I'll tell you what. <laughs> I don't know if I was supposed to say that, but, you know, this is the fourth of four, so it's, we're going to let it fly. Having a good time, but I love your house, and uh, I love what God is doing here. He's just getting started, and uh, I want to introduce you to my family a bit. Um, they're going to be on the screen. This is my wife, Rachel, and my two little kids. That's Levi, who's about to be four, and my little girl, Livy, who's two. Uh, Levi is the life of the party, and uh, Livy is spicy. We'll just say it that way. I like to say she has leadership potential. That is my retirement plan. She's going to be the CEO of a company. Uh, I have my dad here in the room who's my absolute hero. And uh, I will not, I'm sorry, you guys, I will not be looking this direction because I am a crier and my dad is sitting right there. So, uh, but I'm excited to share the word with you this morning. My assignment today is to specifically talk about anxiety and depression and specifically talk about what is going on in many of our heads. And, you know, we're living in the midst of a, an epidemic of mental health in our nation and across the Western world, if you will. And uh, I'm so thankful the Bible has some things to say about that, that the eternal canon of Scripture has some things to say about our mental faculties and our mental health. So we're going to address that today. And before we dive in, I want you to know that if you're struggling with anxiety or depression, that there is hope in the midst of the struggle regardless of what you are walking through, because your hope is not tethered to this life, but, but to an overcoming, resurrected king, there is hope in every season and in every situation. 
So before, uh, before we jump into scripture, let's pray and just uh, and thank the Holy Spirit for who he is. So Jesus, we love you. God, we just thank you. You are so good. You are so kind. And Holy Spirit, we invite you to convict us, challenge us, change us. I thank you the word does not return void. That God is sharper than any two-edged sword. And so God, we, we just ask that you would convict us, that we would leave this place differently than the way that we came in. We want to look more like Jesus and less like us. We don't look more like the sun, God, so we can reflect that to the world around us. And we give you all the honor and all the glory. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Uh, so I grew up as a pastor's kid. So my parents were everything but lead pastors. So they were youth pastors, kids pastors, worship pastors, small groups pastors, associate pastors, janitors, just absolutely everything in the, in the church. And I grew up in a Pentecostal Pentecostal church. So I hear some of y'all, <laughs> it's still there. A Pentecostal Pentecostal church. My first job in the church was putting blankets over people that got the Holy Ghost. That's my very first job. And, uh, and we had long services. You know, I know some of y'all, maybe you're new to the team and you think when we go an hour 30, it's a long service. Let me tell you something. You were an heir of grace because we had three hour services and we sang till the Holy Ghost showed up. And sometimes he just did not show up. I don't know if he didn't like the song. He's like, for love, stop singing. But he didn't show up sometimes. But it was a great era, like a lot of amazing people, loved the word, loved the presence of God. And, and, but what I realized early on is though they were generous, though they were kind, they were amazing people, there was still a tendency to other those who dealt with depression or anxiety. Those who dealt with mental illness, there was a tendency to other those people. And a lot of it was, it was subconscious, it wasn't intentional, but it was kind of a knee-jerk reaction that if someone actually dared to be you know, honest about what was going on in their head, there was a tendency to look at those people and to put a stigma on them. And uh, you know, in 2020, um, I, I've dealt with anxiety and depression for most of my life, and I felt the leading of the Holy Spirit to, to write a book called Invisible Illness. And the entire purpose behind it was to confront the stigma that's often inside of our churches. In a stigma, the dictionary definition is a mark of disgrace associated with a particular circumstance or event. So many people that have dealt with depression and anxiety within Christian circles, there's been this mark of disgrace. There's just been this idea that maybe you're dealing with this because you lack faith or you don't submit to scripture or you don't have a relationship with Jesus. And let me just for a moment, I wanna break that off of some people. Because that is not the case. The reason that we struggle in this life is because we live on a sinful, broken, fallen planet. And sin has infected and affected everything that we experience on this side of eternity. And there is a day when he's going to wipe every tear from our eyes and there'll be no more death, no more crying, no more weeping. But unfortunately, that day is not today. And in between right now and the day when we see Jesus face to face is this thing called life. And in life, there is struggle. And sometimes that struggle is within the context of our own minds. You know, just think about the, just this idea of life, right? And I think it'd be a whole lot easier, and this is a bit morbid, but hang with me for a moment. If the moment you get the revelation that Jesus is, in fact, the Son of God, he just kills you. You know how much easier your life would be if the moment you surrender your life to Jesus, you just, bop, you're just dead in the pew. It'd be a lot easier. But that's not the way God works. 
See, because the moment that God saves you, he begins this process of sanctification. This process of making you look more and more and more like Jesus and less and less and less like you. The Bible says we're being conformed into the image of Christ. It's this process of weeding out our sin and weeding out our brokenness. And and we don't like struggle. We're very comfortable in America, right? Our, Our idols of choice are comfort and convenience, And oftentimes it leaks into our Christianity where we think everything needs to be immediate, but God works in the process. He works through the struggle, through the pain, through the suffering, through all of it, and ultimately it is for your good. You know, uh, Dylan said this earlier, that Romans 8, 28, that God makes all things work together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purposes. That is the way God works. I want to read some more scripture to you just about this idea of the process and how God is refining us. It says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. James chapter 1, verse 2. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know the testing of your faith produces perseverance. And let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Romans eight eighteen. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Romans chapter five, verse one. Therefore, since we've been justified through faith, We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. But not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings. Isn't that encouraging? (laughs) Because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope. This process, this suffering that, and by the way, all of us are going to go through it. So maybe anxiety and depression is not the suffering you're walking through. But you will walk through some things. And you can either cling to the truth of Scripture and allow God to redeem the suffering, or you can just suffer. We can suffer well and allow God's process, his refining fire, to make us look like gold on the other end of it. And so if you're suffering with anxiety and depression, listen, that's rough. But God, when you are submitted to the lordship of Jesus Christ, hear me, he never wastes pain. He uses it to refine you and to make you look more and more like Jesus. And I want to give you a couple definitions so we're we're on the same page if we're going to talk about depression and anxiety. When we're, we're talking about depression, what we mean is a constant feeling of sadness and a loss of interest, which stops you doing your normal activities. So when someone's walking through depression, they're not just sad. I want to be clear, right? Not having your favorite candy makes you sad. When my kings lose, my Sacramento kings, it makes me sad. There's been a lot of sadness the last 16 years. (laughs) But God is a good God, and we are lighting the beam now, baby. Come on. (laughs) Anxiety. It's an emotion characterized by feelings of tension, worried thoughts, and physical changes like increased blood pressure. So for me personally, when I've walked through anxiety, it's the most intense feeling of nervousness where I can't process things. I can't, everything is overwhelming. You know, a couple years back, um, I developed an interesting form of anxiety. So my favorite thing to do on, on Sundays is 
just to stand out front and watch people as they're coming into church and say hi to their kids and get high fives. I just, I love that moment. But a couple years back, we're, we're about to have service and I'm about to preach in a couple minutes and, and I'm out front and all of a sudden the very idea of greeting people like, took my breath away. And I started to hyperventilate and I was on the verge of blacking out and I find myself in a bathroom in the, the back of the church just trying to figure out how to breathe. And I had uh, developed social anxiety, which is really inconvenient for a guy that does what I do. Because I'm around y'all a lot. <laughs> but I had to figure out how do I process what's going on through my head and how do I reconcile what scripture says about having the mind of Christ and my mind being overwhelmed? How do I reconcile these things? And in understanding mental health and striving for a life marked with mental stability is vital for us as Christ followers to, to run after. Because our, our nation right now is in pain. And right now, statistics would bear out that one out of five people in this room personally deals with depression or anxiety. Which means if you're not personally dealing with it, someone you love is. Someone you care about is. So we need to understand what it looks like and how we process and how we biblically walk through what's going on inside of our heads. You know, right now, statistics show that every 11 minutes, someone takes their own life. Just last year alone, 1.7 million people attempted suicide in the United States. So we have a lot of people that are hurting. And what does the Bible have to say about that? And we, uh, we're going to jump into a story of one of the heroes of our faith. You know, one of the things I love about Scripture is that scripture is not like social media. Social media is our highlight reel. Scripture shows you the good, the bad, and the ugly of all the heroes of our faith. It shows you the moments where they're being used by God and the moments that they blow it. You got David, the man after God's own heart, one chapter, and then you got him hooking up with one of his mighty men and then killing him, the next chapter. Scripture shows you the human experience. And so we're gonna look at Elijah, who's one of the most heralded heroes of our faith. And, you know, in 1 Kings 18, it's a, it's a moment I like to call the pray-off, where you have Elijah, and you have the, the priests of Baal and Asherah, and you have 450 priests of Baal, 400 priests of Asherah, and King Ahab. And the whole rule of the game is essentially whoever's God answers by fire, consumes the sacrifice, wins this pray-off. So the priests start, these pagan priests, they start to pray and they're crying out and the Bible says they're cutting themselves, they're acting crazy, they're trying to get uh, their God to answer. And I love that scripture records that Elijah is super petty in this moment. You can read, this is the eternal canon of scripture. That nothing's working and Elijah sits back and says, I don't know, maybe your God's going to the bathroom. Maybe he went on vacation. This is in your Bible, y'all. He just starts making fun of these guys. And then all of a sudden, clearly, he gets fed up with it. So he steps up. He builds the altar, 12 stones, one for each of the tribes of Israel. He puts wood on it and then throws the sacrifice on top. And just to rub it in, he digs this trench and covers this thing with water three times. He prays. Fire from heaven comes, consumes the sacrifice, burns up the stones, burns up the water. And then because it's the Old Testament, he kills everybody. All 850 priests, he just kills them all. This is what they did in the Old Testament. And then after that, he goes up to Mount Carmel, and he begins to pray because there was a three-year drought in the land of Israel. And he prays seven times, and then God begins to bring, he brings this rainstorm that ends the drought in the land. So you have Elijah, this guy that just calls fire from heaven, 
ends a three-year drought, and I want you to hear what happens in the next verse. First Kings chapter 19, verse 1 says this. Now Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I don't make your life like one of them. And Elijah was afraid, and he ran for his life. And when he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there while he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. He came to a broom bush. He sat down under it and prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. Then he laid down under the bush, and he fell asleep. Just think about this context for a moment. A couple verses, he goes from calling fire from heaven to asking God to take his life. He goes from being used by God to end a three-year drought to suicidal ideation. How do you go from mountaintop to valley so fast? And I think those of us who have dealt with depression and anxiety, we know that feeling oh too well. You know, I think this is common to the human experience, but it's wild how we can go from understanding and confessing the faithfulness of God to a place where we doubt the very existence and faithfulness of God so quickly. There's, there's three things I think we see in this, this, this moment in history that if we're going to apprehend a life marked with mental stability that we need to avoid. So the first thing we're going to talk about here that's really important is that he allowed his emotions to control his direction. He allowed his emotions to control his direction. Right after the threat from Jezebel, in verse 3, it says, Elijah was afraid and he ran for his life. So just think about this. He's being used by God, calls fire from heaven, ends the drought. A threat from the enemy comes, which produces an emotion. And every emotion is linked to thoughts. But she allowed those emotions and those thoughts to, deter, to determine the direction in which he was going to walk. Those of us who deal with mental illness... And really, anyone that calls yourself a Christ follower, you cannot allow your emotions to determine the manner in which you live your life. You cannot allow every thought, everything that pops in your head, determine your peace, determine how you are going to live your life. This guy goes from understanding the faithfulness of God, the power of God, to running for a from a threat. He goes from making fun of Ahab to running from Jezebel in a couple verses. It's wild what can happen when we give in to one little thought or emotion or feeling. And listen, this is what the enemy does. Because let me just tell you, there is a very real enemy of your soul. There is a very real Satan out there that wants to steal, kill, and destroy the Bible calls him the accuser of the brothers. The Bible calls him the father of lies. And this is what he will do in every single one of our lives. He will, there will be one little thought, one little emotion, one reminder of a failure, one reminder of trauma that if you dwell on it and meditate on it and think about it, it will derail your life. And those of us who have walked through depression, you know this all too well, that, that you might wake up and things are great and all of a sudden one little thought in the morning pops in. And you think about it, and you think about it, and you think about it. And before you know it, you're in a full-blown depressive episode where you can't function. It's because you are allowing a free-for-all in your mind. A lot of us, your mind looks like a UFC fight where it's just a go for it. 
That is not scripture. Listen, let me just read what the Bible says about your thought life and what we are to do with what's going on in our heads. 2 Corinthians 10, verse 5. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. Philippians 4, 8 says, Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. What we do as Christ followers is we choose to meditate on the truth of Scripture and the truth of Scripture alone. And when the enemy lies, we don't sit there and think about it and dwell on it. No, we take it captive and we replace it with truth. See, when the enemy tries to remind you, because I know there's people in this room that you got quite the track record, B.C., before Christ. You got a bit of a track record. And what the enemy will try to do is remind you of the person that you used to be and say, this is why you're disqualified. But listen, it's never been about you being good enough. It's never been about your track record. It says in 2 Corinthians 5 that those who are in Christ are a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. So when the, the enemy comes in and tries to remind you of your sin, you take the truth of Scripture and you say, I know who I have been. But it says in 2 Corinthians 5.20 that he became sin so I could become the righteousness of God. I am a son of God. I am a daughter of God. That is who I am. I might have sinned, but he paid the penalty once and for all on the cross for me. You are not determined by who you have been. Your identity is based in the goodness and the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. That is who you are because of the cross. And I know there's others in this room that what the enemy tries to do in your life is remind you of things that have happened that were not your fault, that break the heart of God. You know, like I said, my parents are awesome. My dad's my hero. Did the absolute best they could to protect us growing up. But there was a guy that went to our church that when I was five years old sexually abused me. A couple years later, I saw porn for the first time. And the first time I remember wanting to kill myself, I was 11 years old. So I remember growing up and what, what the enemy would do to me is remind me of what happened. The trauma, the brokenness. And if I allowed myself simply to think and to think and to meditate and to dwell on it, it would destroy any bit of mental stability I had. So I know there's people in this room that things have happened to you that break the heart of God. One of the most beautiful aspects of Jesus is that we serve a weeping Savior. And it says in, in Isaiah that he's a man of sorrows, acquainted with deepest grief. It says in Hebrews that he was tempted in every way, yet without sin. He knows what it is to be human. His heart breaks for you. But I want you to hear me. Just because you have been a victim doesn't mean that is your life story. Because of the power of the cross, you are not a perpetual eternal victim. You are a victor because you get to stand in authority and a power that is not your own because of the goodness and the grace of Jesus Christ. And it's important... It's so important as a church that we understand this because we live in a culture that is obsessed with the victimhood Olympics. But as Christ followers, listen, things might have happened, but that is not the end of my story. And I was talking to Pastor Ryan earlier, and, and he just said briefly, he says, God didn't sentence you to your story. He trusted you with it. 
which I think is brilliant. See, the fact that what has happened to me, I can share this because I believe that by the power of the Holy Spirit, he's going to use that for healing for some people. Just because something has happened to you is not the end of your story. So when the enemy reminds you of that, you remind yourself of the truth of scripture. I know that happened, but I am head and not the tail, above and not beneath. I am a son of God. He does not hold my sins against me. I walk in forgiveness because I've been forgiven. You begin to rehearse the truth of scripture. This is what we do as Christ followers. But listen, if you allow a free-for-all in your mind, you are never gonna live a life marked with mental stability. We take captive every single thought, every emotion, and we force it to bow to Jesus. Elijah doesn't do this. He hears the threats of the enemy and it causes him to go in a direction that he wasn't supposed to go. Fear determined the way he was going. The second thing he does that we cannot do is Elijah isolated himself. Elijah isolated himself. It says this in in verse 3 that when he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there while he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. So he allows his emotions to control him. Before you know it, he's separating for anyone that would remind him of the person that he was. So keep this in mind. When he calls fire down from heaven, part of his prayer is, you are the almighty God and I am your servant. He's got accurate theology, accurate identity on who he is. You are God, I am not, but I am your servant. All of a sudden, he's buying into a lie and he separates himself from people that are going to remind him of who he truly is. And this is what happens with people that are depressed. Is oftentimes, and this is the, the hard part about it, is isolation makes you depressed. And when you're depressed, you want to be isolated, which is why you need some people in your life who are going to pull you out of isolation. You know, I, I heard one time that um, this pastor gave me advice that I think is brilliant. He said, you need some people in your life that aren't impressed with you. <laughs> which I think is absolutely brilliant. You need some people in your life that are going to tell you like it is. That when you're not living up to the standard of Scripture, they remind you of what Scripture says. That when you're tempted to buy into some lies, they remind you of what the truth is. When you're tempted to isolate and buy into bad theology, they call you back up to the high call of God on your life. When you're living below the potential that God has in your life, they remind you and encourage you and build you up. We need people in our life. Because listen, you and God is not enough. You plus Jesus is not enough. And I know there's some people who are like, I'll prove it with scripture. Just hold your horses. In Genesis, let's go back to the design, how God created everything, designed everything. We're made in the image and the likeness of God. God in and of himself is perfect, eternal community. He is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He eternally exists in perfect community. So how much more post-fall and post-sin do we need other image bearers in our life to more fully reflect the image of God that we're designed to bear? You look in Genesis where God is creating. He speaks and light shows up. He separates earth and sky. He creates animals and vegetation and all of it's good, 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 good. And he makes humans and says, very good. Then he says it's not good for man to be alone. I want you to think about this for a moment. Think about the context. Sin has not entered the scene yet. That happens a, a chapter later. 
Sin's not on the planet. Adam has an optimal relationship with God. He doesn't have sin in his life. God is walking in the garden of the cool of the day, and still God says, it's not good for man to be alone. So how much more, if Adam needed somebody pre-sin, how much more do we need people in our corner, people in our lives, people to build us up and to encourage us? Because listen, we are individually, you're the temple of the Holy Spirit, right? But you are not the church. We are the church. And there is one thing on this planet that Jesus is building, and that's his bride, his gathering, his ecclesia, and that's his church. You need the church, and the church needs you. I want to give you another morbid illustration because I'm feeling crazy. But I want you to imagine, because the Bible says, and let me just read it to you first, in Romans chapter 12, verse 3, it says, Because of the privilege and authority God has given me, I give each of you this warning. Don't think you're better than you really are. Let that sit. Be honest in your evaluation of yourselves, measuring yourselves by the faith God has given us. And just as our bodies have many parts, and each part, excuse me, each part has a special function, so it is with Christ's body. We're many parts of one body, and we all belong to each other. I need you. You need me. I just want you to imagine for a moment, you and your gifting. Let's say you got a spiritual gift of hospitality, and you're the hand of the body. As long as you're connected to the body and the blood of the body is flowing through you, you can individually do what you were designed and created and fashioned to do. Uh, and also, the body is more functional. The body can more accurately do what it was designed to do, and you individually can do what you were designed to do. Now, I want you just to just imagine for a moment that I just chopped this puppy off. I just chopped my hand off, and it's just sitting there. Let me ask you, what can that hand do without the blood of the body running through it? What can that hand do if, the, if the, the brain waves aren't telling it how to function? So not only is the body, not only does the body have less capacity, but you, the, the hand, individually, you cannot do what you were designed to do. The problem is there's a whole lot of Christians that you look like a dismembered hand in the spirit. Because you might show up on a Sunday, but are you really connected to the lifeblood of the body? Let me just encourage you. Don't just come in and sneak out. Get connected. Get around some people that know you, know your strengths, know your weaknesses, know your story, know your life, and can call you out and encourage you when you need it. We need each other. And just for a moment, I want to talk to some people online. Maybe you're online just because of convenience. If you're sick, for the love of God, please stay home. But if it's just convenience, get in the room. We need each other. You cannot do this by yourself. Let me be clear. In the day and age we live in, in the culture we live in, there is no such thing as Lone Ranger Christianity. We need each other as the body of Christ, holding each other accountable, reminding each other about the goodness of Jesus, the greatness of Jesus, the truth of Scripture. You can't do this by yourself. We see Elijah, he he allows his, his emotions to control his direction. All of a sudden, he goes out on his own. He, he abandons his, his servant. And then we find the third thing that he does that we cannot do. The third thing that he does is he partners with a lie. The third thing he does is he partnered with a lie. 1 Kings 19.4 says this. He came to a broom bush. He sat down under it and prayed that he might die. I have had enough, Lord, he said. 
take my life, I'm no better than my ancestors. Which again, this is really closely tied to your thought life. Because he confesses, I'm no better than the ancestors who murmured and complained and caused a three-day journey to the promised land to turn into a 40-day wilderness trek. I'm no better. And again, a couple verses later, he knew he was the servant of the Almighty God, but somehow in the process, his theology changes. And you partner with a lie. Man, I pastored through 2020, and I think every pastor deserves a T-shirt that says, I survived 2020. But unfortunately, what I saw, and this goes back a bit to, to isolate, it relates to all of them, but enforced isolation, what you had are people who, one little offense, when there wasn't some people to correct it, you saw their theology change, you saw their identity change, you saw them stop actually having a thriving relationship with Jesus, and before you know it, their vocabulary changed. They're confessing different things. You need to know that your confession is powerful. What you allow to come out of your mouth is a big deal. Jesus said this, that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So if you want to know what's in somebody's heart, just get around them and hear them talk for a little bit. You know, maybe you're someone, you're like, I just have no filter. No, you got a heart condition. If you got a knee-jerk reaction towards pessimism, it's not that God made you that way. No, your heart is sick. Because your confession is simply a reflection of what is inside of your heart. Because you either get to partner with a lie by confessing the truth, or excuse me, by confessing a lie, or you partner with the truth by confessing the truth. Whatever is coming out of your mouth is simply a symptom of what's really going on inside of you. So let me ask you, in the era in which we live, when we're on the brink of World War III, what's your confession like? Do you got hope? Or if we get around you for a little bit, is it all doom and gloom and everything's going to blow up? Well, maybe. But our hope's not tethered to this life. And listen, the reality is he's going to destroy this place one day. I don't know if it's tomorrow or not. But our hope is not rooted to this life. What is coming out of you? The people around you, are they getting... Are they hearing the word of God and the truth of scripture? Do people get around you and they feel built up and loved and encouraged because the Holy Spirit is leaking out of you? When they get around you, do they live just like they got slimed on? We all got that uncle. But when we partner with the truth and we confess the truth, here's what's amazing is, you know, science is catching up with the Bible. It always does. Your brains are designed with what's called neuroplasticity. And what that means is your brain actually changes and evolves based on the stimuli that's introduced into it. And one of the biggest stimuli that changes the landscape of your brain is, in fact, your thought life. So if you are constantly negative and confessing negative, what actually happens is you are, it's as if you're burning a trail in your brain towards negativity and towards the lies. This is just your biology. This is the way you're wired but you can actually rewire your brain. When you take captive every single thought, you force it to submit to the truth of scripture and you confess the truth of scripture. What happens is you're hearing yourself confess scripture 
And you are literally rewiring your brain towards truth and towards positivity and towards life. This is the way God has wired us. So if you're dealing with anxiety and depression, listen, I'm not here just trying to give you a spiritual pep talk. I'm not talking about manifesting your future. I'm talking about reciting scripture. You see this throughout the word of God where he's saying, where, uh, in the Old Testament specifically, you see um, the Levites calling the people of Israel to get your kids around and talk about the law. When you wake up and when you go to bed, recite, rehearse, talk, talk, talk. Because truth is going to define you or lies are going to define you. So what are you allowing to, uh, to take up the landscape of your mind? The truth of scripture or lies? Just think about the process for Elijah for a moment. This man of God that called fire from heaven ends a drought. His emotions start to control his life. He leaves behind anyone that could remind him of the truth and who he really is. And before you know it, he's confessing a lie, partnering with a lie, and wanting God to take his life. This is a process for many of us who deal with depression. So we can't do those things, but you know, I'm all about the practical stuff. We need to do all that. You need to be in community. You got to take captive your thoughts. You need to confess the truth. I'm all about therapy and the common grace of medicine. I think that's amazing. But I want to be clear. The reason you have hope in the struggle is not because of any of those practical things. There's another reason you have hope in the struggle. I think at the end of this, this narrative right here, we see something that's prophetic in nature. And I want to read this to you in 1 Kings chapter 19, uh, verse 5. It says this, All at once an angel touched him and said, Get up and eat. He looked around, and there by his head was some bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. And so he ate and he drank, but then he lay down again. The angel of the Lord came back a second time, and he touched him, and he said, Get up and eat, for the journey is too much for you. So he got up and ate and he drank, and strengthened by that food, he traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. There he went into a cave and he spent the night. Now I know what I just read, some people are like, how does that relate to anything whatsoever what we're talking about? Some verses seem a bit random. But I wanna remind you just a, a good hermeneutic is that all of Scripture is pointing to its ultimate fulfillment in the person of Jesus Christ. All of the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, it's all about Jesus, fully God, fully man, stepping into human history. Just think about this context for a moment. You have Elijah, this man that is void of hope, void of strength. He's in this place where he's asking God to take his life. And all of a sudden, an angel shows up to from heaven an angel shows up to give him food he didn't deserve, water he didn't earn, to give him strength he couldn't muster up on his own. So the sustenance that he needed, he didn't earn, he didn't deserve, he didn't work for, but it's provided by heaven to give him the strength for the journey. I can't help but think about the ministry of Jesus. He's standing out in the crowd and he looks at people that are broken and hurting. He says, hey, I'm, I'm the bread of life. Come to me and eat. Looks at that same crowd and he says, I'm, is anyone thirsty? 
Come to me and drink. Listen, the reality is if you want real hope and real peace, counseling's great, but it's not going to give you peace in every situation. The common grace of medicine is awesome, but it's not going to give you hope long term. There is one place and one place alone where you can find hope and peace and strength for life, and that is coming back to Jesus again and again and again and again, where his mercies are new every single morning. I want you to notice this angel doesn't just reply, uh, excuse me, he doesn't give him food one time, multiple times. If that's not a reflection of our dependence on Jesus, that every morning we have to come back to the bread of life to get strength. Every morning we have to come back to the one who gives us real water to get strength for what we need. Listen, regardless of what your struggle is in this room, Jesus is the answer. Matthew eleven twenty eight. 28, I've used this verse in, on a daily basis almost, where he says, come to me, all who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you Come to me broken. Come to me anxious. Come to me depressed. Come to me messed up. Come to me with your marriage issues. Come to me with your financial issues. Come with me broken. Come to me sinful. And I will give you rest. In one of my, my, my worst depressed seasons of my life, I was, uh, I was a youth pastor. And uh, my wife and I, we're, we're running this ministry. And, and it, it was incredible what God was doing. The presence of God was tangible in the room. And Kids are giving their lives to Jesus and seeing Jesus for who he really is, and it's growing and thriving. And, but I was still more depressed than I'd ever been in my life. I remember one Wednesday night, I'm, I'm sitting out front in my car, and the, the room where the, the youth had service was right in front of where my car was at, and I could hear the kids laughing. I could hear the music playing. I'm sitting in my car contemplating taking my own life in that moment. And we ended up stepping down from, from ministry and Went to therapy and, and uh, went to the doctor, got all the blood work and all this stuff, did all the practical things, changed my diet, worked out more. That's all good and that's all great. But what gave me hope and peace and got me to a place of mental stability was none of those things. I pulled out a guitar that I can barely play. In the midst of my despair, I just began to sing about the goodness of Jesus. When I lacked hope, I would to sing about the hope available in Jesus Christ. When I lacked peace, I would begin to sing about the Prince of Peace and his faithfulness and his goodness. That when I'm faithless, he is faithful. And I just determined I'm gonna come back again and again and again. And listen, there is a struggle in our life. But you can have hope because you serve a risen Savior who conquered sin, death, hell, and the grave. And whatever you are walking through, let me remind you, he is the name above all names. That means Jesus is greater than the name of depression and anxiety and lack and marriage issues and sickness and disease. Whatever you are walking through, he is greater. And you can have hope in the struggle because it's not about you. <laughs> we get to stand in authority and a power that's not our own because of the goodness and the grace of Jesus Christ. I want to pray for y'all really quick. And I first just want to give some people an opportunity to um, 
with every head bowed just for a moment. I want to share the message of Jesus very simply. The message of Jesus, the Bible calls the gospel, is that we're all broken in our sin. We can't save ourselves. We can't fix ourselves. We're out of hope in and of ourselves. But God put on skin and bones. He stepped into human history, lived a perfect, sinless life. And he died on a cross, and the cross was brutal because that's what our sin looks like. But through that sacrifice of Jesus, when we put our hope and our faith and our life in the hands of Jesus, our sin is paid for. So what it means to be a Christian is to realize that you are sinful, can't save yourselves. But Jesus is God. He paid for your sin. He rose from the grave, and you give him your life. That's the start of a relationship with Jesus Christ. It's that simple. So Jesus, right now in this room, I just pray for every person, Holy Spirit, that you're grabbing onto their heart right now. You're drawing them by your spirit. God, I pray every hindrance would fall in the name of Jesus and they would see you for who you are. God, I pray for every person right now. They don't even understand the details of what I'm saying, but the Holy Spirit is showing them this is true. God, I pray today is the day they can mark off the calendar and say, I became a follower of Jesus Christ that Sunday morning. God, I thank you all. Heaven celebrates when one person repents of their sin. So God, right now, again and again, we repent of our sin. We believe you are God and we give you our life. We thank you. Your sin paid for us. In Jesus' name. And right now, I want to pray really quickly for every person that's dealing with their depression and anxiety. Jesus, you're the healer. You're the same yesterday, today, and forever. So God, every depressed mind right now, God, I bind the power of depression and I break it. Every anxious mind, I pray the peace of God that surpasses understanding over every heart and mind in the name of Jesus Christ. God, over every person that's void of hope, right now, I pray hope will be restored again. God, I pray every sleepless night. God, it says in Psalms that you give sweet sleep to those you love. So God, right now, I pray that over every person in the room. God, I thank you for healing. I thank you for restoration. Peace in every heart. Peace in every mind. Your presence, God, as they lay their head on the pillow in your presence when they wake up. And so, God, right now, we thank you for your healing power. In the mighty name of Jesus Christ, amen, amen. Awesome. Thank you, guys.